We have a, a sermon series. We're going to start reading through 1 Samuel, through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to kind of break it up in different topics. Uh, the first couple of weeks, as we read through the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, it's all about these two families. One of them is going towards the Lord, and the other one is going the opposite direction. And as a father of five kids, there's nothing more that I want than for my kids to know the Lord. I have been so blessed by my relationship with Jesus, the personal relationship I have with His Holy Spirit, and also just the relationship I have with Him through the Word of the Lord. When I worship the Lord, when I spend time in prayer, uh, when, I, when I worship to the, the songs that our worship team brings us or at home, I feel his presence and it fills me. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's like the electricity of the Holy Spirit. There's something that happens when I worship the Lord. It doesn't happen when I listen to other music. It didn't happen before. But I became born again and now I have the electricity of the Holy Spirit. I feel his presence, his peace, and his comfort. And as I look back at my life, I thank God that I've read his word, that I've experienced his love, and that I've dove into the word to find out about the one who loves me, because I've never regretted following his word. The only times in my life that I regret are the times where I didn't follow his word. And I look at that, and I want that for my kids. I want that for my kids so bad, and everybody does. And this is an interesting world because in the same family, you can have a bunch of people who know and love the Lord and you can have one kid who's just like, no, I'm not doing it. And you think, why? Why? Why is this child different than the rest? And then on the flip side, you can have a family where nobody follows the Lord, not a single one of them. Man, we had a kid like that who came to our church. He was 10 years old. His neighbors brought him. His family was just, you know, beyond anything I'd ever seen. And here's this kid who grows up in this mess and he just goes towards the Lord. How? How? How can we repeat that one? Right? How can we save this one? How can we get more of that one? And the answer is, we can learn some things from 1 Samuel. There's things that we can do. Ultimately, it comes down to the person and their heart. We can't force anybody to follow Jesus. You can't force anybody to love the Lord. But there's some very important things that we can do as parents, as grandparents, as brothers and sisters that will help lead our families to find him. And we're going to be reading through 1 Samuel, looking at some of those things. Let's begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now, that's if you're looking for your morning devotions and you're like, God, I want to hear from you today. And you read this verse. I mean, this isn't going to be the verse of the day for you when you open up the Bible Gateway app. All right, sometimes I don't have time to read the Bible, right? I'm looking for a pick-me-up, a peppy thing. I, I open up the Bible gateway or the Bible app. They got the verse of the day. It's almost always I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I say, yes, let's go. But that just gives me strength for today. And if our faith is just about finding strength for the day, we'll always be weak. And so we've got to get into the word. We've got to read the word and understand it. Why is this in here? Why does any of us care about this? Why didn't, when the word of the Lord came to Samuel and told him that you got to write down this, write down where he's from, write down who his ancestors are, write it all down. Why? Because God knew that ever, ever since that somebody wrote this down, they'd say, the Bible's a myth. It's rooted in mythology. There are other mythologies out there. 
There's the Quran. There's the Egyptian mythology, the Greek mythology, the Roman. None of those have this. Did you know that? You know, I got in trouble at my last church because I said, you all need to read other religions' holy books. And I, I was wrong because somebody came up and said they haven't read ours yet. <laughs> I was like, good point. Good point. Read this one first. But then once you grow to know and love the word and understand it, then read other, you will find that this is inspired by God. This is unlike anything man has ever written. That's not an exaggeration. I could go on and on. The disciples wrote down the gospels. People say they're fiction. Did you know that the genre of fiction did not exist until the year 1100? That's 1100 years after the disciples. These are historic. If they're, if they're historical, if they're fiction, they're historical fiction. The first historical fiction novel, I think, was written in the year 1500 or 1700. You telling me that the disciples figured out a genre that nobody else would understand or copy for 1700 years? No, I think they're writing history. It's not mythology. Read them. Read the different religions. You can tell mythology and you can tell history. This is a history book. It happened in a certain place. It happened to certain people. Everybody could go and say, hey, I know Jeroham, son of Elihu, and Rothaim, Ramathim, Zophim. I passed through there twice a year. Now, these details are important. We're reading a history book. This is a situation that actually happened, just like the rest of Scripture. And so here we have, we have the word of the Lord. I'm sure it's going to be uplifting. I'm sure it's going to be inspiring. I'm sure it's going to hit it from the get-go. Because if God was looking to inspire us in our morning devotions, that's how we'd start, wouldn't he? All right, I'm ready for it. Let's read it. Verse 2. Elkanah, son of Jerome. What, is, what did he do? He had two. Oh, come on! Come on! He had two wives! We're all in verse 2, and he's messed it up already. <laughs> he's messed it up. We got the first verse in the story. It's a failure. This man living at this time had two wives. We have a word for that. We call it polygamous. Polygamy. Media loves it. I read liberal news just so I can see what's going on in the minds of unbelievers. They love polygamy. For years, it's been little articles here and there. Family finds that polygamy has really opened up their marriage. <laughs> like this isn't news, CNN. This ain't news. This is propaganda. It's the Satan's propaganda. They've been working it. They've been working it for years. Back in the day, we said, I remember when I was in church, I had a crusty old pastor. Man, I love that guy now. He used to stand and say, if we do this, if we do that, it's a slippery slope. We're going up here, here, and here, and here. He was right about all of it. But all the critics would say, well, no, that's not true. We can allow this. We can allow that. It won't lead to any. It doesn't. The slippery slope argument is a fallacy. Didn't you know that? Well, the man was right. The prophets of God have been right. The people who were saying they're going to try to break down the family were right. They've been saying it forever. Nobody's been listening. We've got prophets today. Did you know that? They're in the church. They're speaking. If you were listening, they would have told you that Satan's going to try to break down the family for generations. And you might have been deceived by the culture. You might have voted to support it. Because you're not listening to God. And you need to start listening to his prophets. You need to start listening to his word. Polygamy in our culture. Man, when you were a kid, could you have imagined that? Now it's out there. It's supported. It's one of the stripes on the flag. 
support these people. They can't commit. That's who they are. Love them. This guy's one of them. He had two wives. If we could go to the next slide. Back in the day, I know I'm like beating a dead horse here or something, but it's important for us to talk about. We've lost the cultural battle. We need to accept that. Take a look around. We've lost. They disagree. They changed the word. And here's one of the ways they did it. They had powerful sounding arguments. I mean, these people aren't dumb. Satan's not dumb. They have powerful sounding arguments. I remember this right here. You might have seen this. This, and this, this would be an argument they'd bring to us. Oh, Christian, how can you say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Haven't you read your Bible? They'd say, and they pull out verses like, oh, look at that. In the Bible, there's all these different type of marriages. There's the man and the woman, the nuclear family, but then all, there's also a man and his wives and his concubines. There's a second one down. Abraham had two concubines. Gideon had one. Jacob had one. Nahor had one. Caleb had one. Manasseh had one. Then there's a man and a woman and a woman's property. A man could acquire his wife's property, including her slaves. That's what they say. Now, this is mostly accurate. I want you to know this is mostly accurate. But there's important, very important deception in here. And we'll get to that in a moment. There's a man and a woman and a woman. And there's polygamy. Lamech is polygamous. He comes in right, almost right off the bat. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Let's read it. Genesis 4, verse 16. Oh, not 16, 19. Lamech took two wives. We're barely past Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Lamech. Lamech right away has taken two wives. Christian, didn't you know there's polygamy in your Bible? What a hypocrite. You don't know the word. You don't know what marriage is. The Bible doesn't teach clearly what marriage is. Look at all these different marriages on the Bible. You got a man and his brother's widow. You got a rapist and his victim, male soldier and prisoners of war, male slave and female slave. And, they, they tell, and all these are in the Bible. Did you know that? Did you know that? But all of these are sin except one. They're in the Bible. There's a lot of things in the Bible. The Bible doesn't hide the truth. Life is messy. The Bible's about life. And so it's in there. Now, growing up, I never understood why. I would ask that question. I don't think I ever understood why. It's probably because of I wasn't listening but I used to ask that question. I didn't know, why did King David, King Solomon, Abram, why did they do this? Suddenly, as the marriage debate ramped up, it's like, I wish I knew. Why didn't I listen? I had to study it. I had to read it for myself, figure it out. These are, for the most part, types of marriages that are in the Bible. This graphic was used to say, silly Christian, you think... Marriage is between a man and a woman. Your Bible shows many diverse forms of marriage. Why are you so bigoted? I have to say, well, this is persuasive at first glance. This is the most deceptive thing that you could put out on marriage. If you think these marriages are approved by God in the Bible, you haven't read your Bible. Why does it say that Lamech took two wives? Why is that an important thing in Genesis? Because right before, God gave his definition of marriage. So the two shall leave their mother and father and become one flesh. And so why does it mention that Lamech is polygamous? It it mentions it without commentary. It doesn't say Lamech was polygamous and that's a sin, guys. Well, you should know. You should have just read Genesis 1 and 2. 
And that's the point. Lamech should have read Genesis 1 of 2. What's he doing? This is significant. This is not what God wanted for us. God created us, and three chapters in, we're already rebelling against him. Four chapters in, we've already started to break down the family, the relationship that God created. There's one relationship in here that's different than all the others. It's the one that God created. It's the one that God intended. It's the one that God blessed. God didn't create an individual person. He created a relationship between two people. God didn't say, I'm going to bless you with my image. He said, I'm going to bless you both with my image. There's one relationship on here that bears God's image. The rest are Satan's counterfeits. And we got people following him right at the beginning of Genesis. We got people still following him in Samuel. There's a lot of things in the Bible. It doesn't mean because it's in the Bible it's right. Moses was a murderer. We're going we're gonna to argue that for murder next? You're gonna, are we going to see a graphic up there in five years about how it's okay to murder because Moses murdered? These people haven't read the Bible. They're not here. To, look at If you think about the Bible critically and you don't think about the culture that you go in Monday through Friday critically, I'm just going to throw, I don't think you're one of Jesus' sheep. I think you're playing for the wrong team. You got spiritual disease in you and it needs to be healed. Jesus' sheep use the word and we learn from it and then we go out and we fight against the culture. We fight against our own lives. I'm not doing that. Our culture tells me this. I'm not doing that because I've read the word. And if you sit there and you've been influenced by your culture, you look at this and you say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But you don't sit there and read the news and say, I don't know what's up with these people. I went to college and the professor stood up front and he said, in this class, we're going to challenge our ingrained assumptions. And then he, he went on to rail against everything traditional, including family. We're going to challenge our ingrained assumptions. And all these people went along with it. They're paying money. They're paying money to be brainwashed. They're not learning to think critically. I'm sitting there thinking, you're telling us to think critically. I'm thinking critically about you. I want you to think critically about me. I want you to read this and think critically about what I'm saying. Read it for yourself. Elkanah should have. You should too. All these kids went to college. We're going to challenge our ingrained assumptions. What a deceptive phrase. You just labeled everyone who disagree with you as having a belief that is just merely an assumption. No facts, no reasons. Just, we just assumed it. And we're going to think critically about it. But nobody's sitting there thinking critically about him. If you think critically about the word, and there's been times in my life I've been influenced by my culture. I look around, I read, I say, that verse doesn't seem to make sense. Something must be wrong with this. We need to think critically about our culture. You need to give your heart to Jesus. And this is his word. He's given this to you to guide you, to lead you. He wrote it down for you so that you wouldn't have to listen to other people. You could read it from him yourself. What an amazing blessing. There are lots of things in the Bible, but not everything in the Bible is God's will. Not everything in our life is God's will. There's a huge difference between what is described in life and what has been prescribed by God. There are many different marriages in there that are described in the Bible, but only one is prescribed by God. To look at what God intended for marriage, 
We've got to read his words, not Lamech, not Elkanah. What does God say? Let's turn to Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Praise the Lord. God bless them. This relationship bears God's blessing. Do the other relationships bear God's blessing in the Bible? The answer is no, they don't. There are two ways to get a point across. The interesting thing is all of them, both ways, are considered law by the followers of God, the people of God. There is precepts, laws. Are, you can have precepts. And that, that's basically what we just read the right, right there. Uh, actually, let's, let's read it right here in chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 24. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. God didn't make a single person. He made a relationship. I'll make a helper fit for him. When God thought about a a man, he created a helper fit for him. And the helper that he created that was fit for him was a woman. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird. And he created one. How, How many women? One. One man, one woman. When God looked down and said, I want, to, I want to create the perfect relationship. I want to create the relationship that everyone should be. I want to create the model. I'm going to create this. I see this guy. I'm going to make the perfect helper, the suitable helper for him. And it's going to be one of them. And it's going to be a woman. Now out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. That's a miracle. That does that sound so unscientific? Do you have a hard time believing that this morning? Do you have a hard time believing that God could do that? I think he could do that. I don't think it'd be a problem for him. It'd be a problem for you. It'd be a problem for our doctors. It'd be a problem for anybody, not for God. He created the whole world. If you want to do something miraculous like that, it wouldn't take any effort at all. Any effort at all. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man, and he said this... The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And here is the precept that gives the law for God's commandments for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular. And they, too, shall become one flesh. That's God's plan. Elkanah should have read it. Do the other relationships bear God's blessing? The answer is no. No, read through the Bible. Look at the relationships as people go off the rails. See if it's good for them. How good was it when Abraham defied God's commandments and took a concubine? How'd that work out for him? Terribly. Those people groups are still fighting to this day. And the Bible prophesies that they would. The children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac still battling. Terrible idea, Abraham. Terrible idea. Yes, it's in the Bible. It's not what we should do. How to go for Lamech? Not well. 
How's this going to go for Elkanah? There's two ways to describe God's laws. All of them are called law by the Jewish people. The first is precepts. The second is story. We get very rarely, in fact, there's one verse in Leviticus that I wish were clearer. It likely condemns polygamy, but it's not super clear. It's not super clear. There's no super clear condemnation of polygamy. However, there's a clear set forward of what God's law is. And then throughout the rest of the Torah, the law, it's not described in precept. It's not condemned. Polygamy is not condemned in precept. It's condemned in story. As story after story after story, a man fails to follow God's plan and brings pain into his life, into this world, by refuting or rejecting God's plan for his marriage. And you'd have, to be, you'd have to not read your Bible to notice that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 19? Jesus reaffirms what the Old Testament said. Starting in verse four, the Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. And Jesus teaches about marriage, teaches what it is, who's in it, how many. When, when it starts, when it ends. What was prescribed by God is that one man would marry one woman in a lifelong commitment. If you can go to the next slide. There are a lot of things in the Bible. If you can go to Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. Now there are verses that deal with polygamy. It's not God's plan in an ideal world at all. There's one that's not necessarily polygamous, but it maybe could be. Uh, we read about it. It's the Leverite marriage. When a woman's husband dies, her brother can go into her and have a child and raise up a son. It's not about sexual freedom. It's about provision and protection for widows. You needed children. This isn't a joke. Back in the day, survival was on your mind. Marriage was less about love and more about a social contract. How can we get through this together, alive? Both people had superpowers in this relationship that God blessed them with. The woman could bear children and the man could go out and work really hard. It's a stinking superpower against nature and evil. And he needed both of those to come together and work together. And if you're a woman who lost her husband, you are in trouble. This is not about sexual freedom. It's a justice thing. It's a mercy thing. We got to make sure that this woman has help. We got to make sure if she's of childbearing age, she needs to have kids. She's lost her husband. She's in trouble. Her brother, the man's brother can go in and raise a son to her. It's not God's plan for marriage. The man died. Death wasn't planned, part of God's plan. This is a different world, a different society. Exodus chapter 21, 10. As you read across it, you'll see these things. And you'll see stuff like this. If he takes another wife. If he takes another wife. Deuteronomy chapter 24, same thing. If a man divorces his wife. That's what they come to Jesus with in Matthew 19. It says, if a man divorces his wife, do this, do that, do that. Jesus said, that wasn't God's plan. He didn't say divorce wife. He said, if it happens, here's how you respond. If a man takes another wife, here's his respond. Go to Exodus chapter 22, 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep. I mean, we can start stealing ox and sheep. It's in the Bible if you do I mean, you got to read the word. 
And you got to do it with a heart that wants to know and love the Lord. God is so smart. He is an absolute genius. He wrote this word, and he made it clear enough that anybody who has a heart for him will read it and find him. But he's also made it obscure enough that anybody who reads this thing and wants to reject him will convince themselves in their mind. There's enough wiggle room in here that they'll convince themselves in their mind. I found the truth. That church, they don't know what they're talking about. The, The church knows. For 40 years, the prophets have been telling you that the family unit was coming under attack. The church knows. But if you don't want to find the Lord, if you want to find a justification for your sin, you'll find it in here. Here we have this man, Elkanah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. He's put his wife in a difficult situation. He's put his family in a difficult situation because he's failed to follow God's commands. Let's see how that goes for him. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship. (gasps) He's a believer. This guy goes to worship God all the time. Well, whose voice is he listening to? What's he doing when the pastor's preaching? What's he doing at home throughout the week? Oh, is he not this? Now, this man, he used to go up and worship to the Lord of hosts, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they're going to come back in the story. We're priests of the Lord. We have these two families. One's going away from God, one's coming to God. Surprise, actually. Spoiler alert, Elkanah's family is the ones that go to the Lord. And Eli is the ones that go away from the Lord. You wouldn't have thought that by the way this chapter started, would you? On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah and his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival. That's what happens. Take two wives. You invite a rival into your family. One of the sins of women is that they turn each other into rivals. We're going to talk about one of the main sins of men in a, women, in a moment. Don't worry. I listened to a Charles Swindoll sermon a while ago, and he was calling out women for their sin. I thought, I've never heard this before. I've never heard it. Why? Because we've emasculated the church in our society. Ladies, this is what you do. It's hard for you to get along with each other. You view each other as rivals. Her rival used to provoke her grievously. You go out, you like to exclude people from the group. I've noticed this in little kids from the time they're born. My boys didn't do this. My girls did. We go to a park. Oh, look, there's some cute little girls here. Why don't you go play with the cute little girls? They're all dressed so cute. And they go, hmm. And they get a friend. And they exclude the other one. And this is the game they play. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. This is why Facebook is so evil. And ladies, this is why you're on it so much. You want to present yourself. Look how happy I am. Look how great I'm doing. Look, and then you look at all the other ladies and you compare. It's, it's just downright evil. It's messing with your mind. I, can get caught. I got caught up in it too. I had a rival. I went on Facebook to post about how I'm doing okay. Look how great I'm doing. I want them to see that I'm doing okay. 
And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I, I came up with a great self, great self-promotion. Let me, let me just, let me just uh, speak so highly of my sin here for a minute. I wanted him to see, and I want, you know, this person in the church, oh, he's a bad pastor. He doesn't do that. You know, you know what I mean? And so I was like, I'm going to show him, I'm going to show him all the things I'm doing. So every meeting I go to, I'm taking a selfie with me in the corner. You see me in the corner. And then I got all my people in the background. I'm taking them. Look at all my people. Look at them, and they're so great. I'm not promoting myself. They're so, look at all those awesome people, but I'm doing, I'm promoting myself. And I sat down. It took me a while to recognize it because, you know, you blind yourself to your own evil. I thought, this is disgusting. Anyway, she's got a rival. Used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Look at the misery that this man has brought into his wife's life. Oh, this is, okay. And Elk and her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Smart man, this guy. How would Elkanah know? How would Elkanah know he's being a complete jerk? How, how would he know? It wasn't just him. Abraham did this, okay? He took two wives. Jacob did this, okay? They all, they did this. All the people that went to church did this. How would he know? If he just listened to the other people in the pew, how would he know? You, you know, we got sin in our church. If you just listen to that person and you just listen to that person, how would you know? Well, that what they're saying isn't the word of the Lord. You'd have to read it for yourself. You'd have to read it for yourself. He, he couldn't have trusted Abraham on this one. And Abraham's one of the good guys. You know, that's one of the main points of the Old Testament. If we're going to get through this, it's only going to be by the grace and mercy of God. Because this is how blind we are to our own sin. If we're going to get to heaven, if they're going to get to promised land, it's only because of God and his faithfulness. And that hasn't changed. None of us are getting to heaven because we're naturally godly. If any of us get to heaven, it's only going to be on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Every single person who gets in. And if you want to follow Jesus, you just can't listen to any person. You've got to listen to him. Jesus is the head of the church. If I sit here and preach and you listen to me, you've made me the head of the church. You've got to go home and listen to him. We have these great worship songs. I love worship. I've noticed that it excludes an entire section of theology for the most part. It's called God's judgment and God's sin. Every once in a while, I get a good song, but not very often. If you listen to the people who write the songs, you'll have made them ahead of the church. You will not understand and you will not fully know the God who created you and loves you. You've got to listen to him. The main point of today's sermon is going to be read the word. Is that a very unique take? Have you been coming to church for years, hearing a sermon, reading the word? I want you to just close your eyes for a minute, okay? Every, every single person, let's just close your eyes and think about this. Every sermon I've been coming to, pretty much, my whole life has been about reading God's word. It's been about reading God's word. I want you to ask yourself, every eye closed, when was the last time? that I read God's word. And I'm ta talking about a devotion with a proverb at the top and a bunch of personal stories underneath. I'm not talking about the Bible gateway verse of the day. They only pick the same 12 verses. Ask yourself, when was the last time that I read God's word? 
There is a spiritual battle in life. And when you open the word, you don't know it, but the demons start screeching and get ticked off. And then you know what? Somebody gives you a call and then pretty soon you're not reading God. You're watching Netflix. You're on your phone. You're listening to social media. You're doing whatever. You're not hearing the word of the Lord. It's literally a spiritual battle. When you go to open your Bible, the reason why it's so hard is because this is God's word and you've got an enemy who's come against you and it's not a joke. It's serious. And you can tell right now if you're one of the people who's losing that battle because every sermon you've come to is about reading God's word and you're sitting there, I don't remember the last time I read God's word. Has it been seven days? Has it been 30 days? Let's just, everybody close your eyes. If you haven't read God's word in 30 days and you call yourself a Christian, I want you to confess your sin right now and raise your hand and I'm gonna pray for you that the Lord would free you from the bonds of Satan's voice that you can open God's word and raise his voice. Raise your hand right now if you're a Christian who has not read God's word. Lord, bless these people with your spirit. God, as they hear your voice, as they hear the voice of Satan every other place, God, I pray that you'll give them the strength to overcome their enemy and hear from you. Jesus, bless us with your spirit. God, as we get dulled to sleep by scrolling, scroll, 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 as we sit there and we get dulled to sleep by the constant oppression at our workplace, the spiritual oppression at our workplace, God, I pray that you'd free us from the bonds and the chains that Satan gets on our hearts as we'll watch TV, as we'll do this, as we'll do that, and can't open your word. Lord, bless us with freedom in Jesus' name, amen. We all need that. I'm a pastor. Kim came to me the other day, and she's teaching my kids, and she's the, my kids told her something about they don't read the Bible at home. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? Thank you, Kim, for saying that. She did it so non-confrontationally. She said it so gently. She did it so politely. She's a lot better than I am, honestly. We should get Kim up here. I just go ahead. I was, on the, I was mowing my lawn the other day, and I said, Lord, I don't know any. This is just who you've made me. So you either need to change me or just understand that I'm just going to fight every fight head on. It's just what I do. I don't stand here and manipulate. Sorry, I can't do it. I don't know what's wrong with me. We should get Kim up here. She'd be a lot nicer. That's not against, she's great at it. She comes, she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of passing. And I was like, what? My kids said we don't read the Bible? Probably because we were reading like VeggieTales devotionals, you know? It's not the Bible. You know, probably because we were reading the children's storybook Bible. It's not the Bible either. It's a great primer for kids. But I had to go home and I started reading the Bible with my kids and I needed to do it more. I'm not here to be a hypocrite. I'm here to be honest. It's a spiritual battle. I've been reading. I'm trying to get through the letters of John. This is going to be a long sermon, guys. I'm sorry. It's already 1101. I've been trying to get through the book of 1 John at home. And every time I go to open it, somebody does something, they need something, they need to get put back to bed, the kids get out again, I got a notification, whatever. It's taken me months to get through that thing. It's a spiritual battle. I want you to be free from those habits. Just like I'm fighting to be free from those habits. Free from a love of the culture's voice and free to grow in love with God's voice. And we can do this. Great thing about this war is that it's a winnable war through Jesus Christ. For Elk and his family to follow the Lord, for your family to follow the Lord, you have to read God's word. You have to. Hannah can't have children 
In this fallen world, things don't always work like God intended them to. We experience evil and suffering from three different things, our own sinful choices, other people's sinful choices, and the result that we're living in a fallen, sinful world. You might not have done anything. You might not have sinned in any unique way. And here you find yourself unable to have children. It's something to grieve. Infertility is something to grieve. There's a blessing that God has. I have good friends who struggle with infertility. The grief is real. It's because they're missing out on something. Here, Hannah's missing out on something. She prays. Man, I, I just, I pray so much more of my friends who struggle with infertility. Children are such an amazing blessing. And yet, they're still not given to us to replace God. Our marriage, I pray for my single friends. I have friends that are single right now. I'm praying for them. They're my age. It's going to be ridiculous, right? The suffering, the loneliness. 27 years. That's how old I am. 20, just kidding. <laughs> These poor people have suffered 20. No, it's a lot more than that. And yet the marriage is not meant to replace God. Here Elkanah sits in here and is like, baby, What's the problem? Why aren't you fulfilled with me? Jesus tells us we're supposed to be fulfilled with him. Let's go to John chapter 6. Can we move forward to that John 6 verse? John 6, 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're supposed to be fulfilled with Jesus. One of the things we got to do is if our family is going to find God, we can't find fulfillment in them. We have to find fulfillment in the Lord. No human being was meant to do that for another person. And so many parents drive their kids away from the scriptures because their kid is their idol and they can't let anything be. They're just all over their kids. They're either enabling them, they're trying to get them to act perfectly, they can't stand that they have a, a moment of doubt in their faith, and so they are all on that kid because their kid is their idol. And I got to say, I can understand that. I got five of them. They're fantastic. I've got a beautiful, wonderful wife. My marriage could be my idol. How many people are needy in their relationship? They just can't get along with their spouse because they demand everything from their spouse because they don't find fulfillment in God. They're looking to their spouse. We've got to find fulfillment in the Lord. Noble idols are all the more deceptive. We make some evil things an idol, but what we do a lot more is we make a really good thing an idol. And we put that in the place of the Lord. And Elkanah is basically doing that to her wife, his wife. And the culture is doing that to Hannah. Now today, I would say in the Christian culture, we might have an idol of our children. In the secular culture, I'm not sure. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I don't think we value children enough. The birth rate keeps dropping. The average, because people don't care about, they care about their career, they care about travel, they care about all these things. But in the Christian culture, we might do that. And also in Hannah's culture, they did that. Children meant survival. They meant provision, males especially. They might even mean prosperity, which is incredibly rare. And so if you had kids, what a blessing. You were blessed by God. If you didn't have kids, you were cursed by God. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. However, the culture's got an idol and they see everything through this lens. Hannah, you should be sad. You ain't got any kids. 
Children are a blessing, but they're not to be the blessing in life. There's actually something greater than children. It's a relationship with Jesus. The Westminster Confession puts it great. What is the chief end of man? To know and enjoy the Lord forever. That is the ultimate idol in this life. It's Jesus. Children are a blessing, but they should not be an idol. Here's Hannah. Her husband's telling her that he should, she should find, find fulfillment in him. The culture's telling Hannah she should find fulfillment in having kids. But the answer is neither. She should find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want our families to find him, we need to be fulfilled with the Lord. Can we go to the next slide? I've got kids. They are fantastic. They are absolutely fantastic. This is my prayer for them. Right? This is my prayer for them. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. You talk about marriage. Elkanah's like, find fulfillment in me. Opposite. Marriage is about emptying yourself. I tell everybody who gets married, if you go into this relationship thinking you're going to find fulfillment, you will likely be one of those couples that divorces. So many people get divorced. It's because they go in thinking that this person is going to fulfill me rather than I'm going to empty myself and serve and sacrifice for this person. It's all about service and sacrifice. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's such a sacrifice. For the husband, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What wouldn't Christ sacrifice for his church. Nothing. What a sacrifice. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus washes us with his word. That's why it's so important to read it. He's wrote it down for us. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as one body, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I want my kids to have this so bad. You know, I've got a great marriage. It's not perfect, but it's, it's an amazing marriage. And the more we get closer to this, the more our relationship is fixed. This is beautiful stuff. I want this for my kids. One of my greatest fears is my daughters will marry a man who's not committed to her, like most men aren't. We just talked about sins of the ladies. We're going to talk about sins of the men. I've never met a man who's naturally monogamous. I'm only attracted to one woman. I didn't, I didn't like any of them. And then I saw this one and I was like, oh, it's just so natural. It's just so easy for me. I've never, ever met anybody who said that. And I wouldn't say that's my situation myself. But the more that I repent of my sin, the more that I focus on my wife and listen to God's voice instead of Satan's voice, the more my life is blessed, the more my life is better, the more my marriage is fantastic. One of my greatest fears is that my daughter is going to marry someone who's not committed and faithful to them. One of my greatest fears is my son is going to grow up and marry some feminist, right? Who has no idea about submission, who's never been corrected in her life. Some spoiled girl whose father never disciplined her, whose culture never disciplined her, who will grow up wearing shirts that said, girl power, girl power, girl power. Talk about sexist. My hope, my prayer, and there's just fewer and fewer of them around. I'm already trying to arrange marriages with some of your children. 
But how would Hannah know where to find fulfillment? She's got to read the word. She's got to be washed with the word. Her culture's telling you, idolize the kids. Her husband's telling you, idolize me. She's got to go back to the word. Hannah, her marriage has gone wrong spiritually. It's gone wrong emotionally. It's gone wrong physically. What do you do? What do you do if your marriage is this, this way? The first thing you got to, like we've been saying, find fulfillment in God. If you're desperate, if you're at the end of your rope, Remember that God did not create any of these things to replace him. If you have him, you'll be able to get through anything. If you have him, he turns you from a victim into someone who's got victory. Whether your child is, whether your husband's evil, if you have Jesus, he will bring you victory. doesn't mean life's easy, but it means you've got victory in this world, and it's something to have. Find fulfillment in him. If you've got a terrible marriage, Pray and ask Christ what love and service and sacrifice that you need to bring to the marriage. Just because your spouse is checked out, just because they're not following the Lord, does not mean that it's okay for you to either. God has got ways that he wants you to grow. One of the greatest ways that you can stop your spiritual growth is become a victim and say, they're so bad to me, they're so bad to me, and your life becomes about their sin. But God wants to speak to you on your sin. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to wash you with the word. He's got a plan for you. And the more you stop treating yourself like a victim and start looking at how you can sacrifice and serve that spouse, loving your enemies, a verse in the Bible, sometimes we have to do it in our own house. But God wants you to learn how to do it. And so if you have a terrible marriage, the next thing is to not stop your sanctification. Don't miss out on the good that God wants to grow in you. The next thing is pray. Pray. I was talking to a frustrated person and they said, uh, I said, why don't you pray about it? They said, what good is that going to do? Three months later, their prayers were answered. It's incredible. I said, do you feel like God has answered your prayer and heard you? Like, yes, that was amazing. Prayer changes things. For the most part, it changes us. Miracles happen. But the most important part about prayer, pray, hope for a miracle, but the most important part about prayer is not what you get, it's who you're with. God allows everything for a reason. He loves you. Everything God allows in this world, it's because he wants you to go further in love with him. Seek the counsel of others. Every relationship needs third eyes looking on it. Sarah and I have been to a counselor before. You have to have other people speaking into your marriage. How can you, you lead your family to God? Find fulfillment in the Lord. Read his word. Don't let any of his blessings take his place. Hannah must be asking God, why? Why me? Year after year. For Hannah, children are a blessing that God intended for us to be able to have. It's not that God's mean. God's not mean. He's not the one who's causing this pain. He's the one who's going to fix it. I know childless people who've had miscarriage after miscarriage. If they think the Lord is mean and reject him and his salvation, they will go to hell and they will never experience any of their prayers being answered. But if they follow him and put their trust in him, they'll find out that they've got multiple children waiting for them. They will see God's promises fulfilled to them. Never stop believing. How do we follow God in our pain? You keep bringing it to him. And remember that he's good. Luke chapter 11, God's not a mean father. He's a good father. And he will heal all things. And what does he say at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11? The Lord teaches to pray. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Now you'll have what you want. 
That's not what he says. He says, God is a good God who knows how to give good gifts. How much more will the heavenly father give you the health, give you the riches, give you the... No, that's not what he says. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Nothing is worth substituting in place of the Holy Spirit of God. Pour out your soul to the Lord. Remember that he is the idol. He is the prize. He's a good God. And if you found him, you found the treasure. You found the Holy Grail. He isn't the source of your pain. He's the one who's going to save you. Hannah pours out her soul to the Lord in chapter two, verse six. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down a shoal and he raises up. There are so many gifts that we want that another person can't put under the tree. And if we're looking for fulfillment in life, our husband or our children can't bring that to us. And we've misplaced it. It's the Lord who can bring that. So what does this woman do? She comes to the Lord. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to you all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Her, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Man, Eli is a good priest. He's a good pastor. It's complicated. He's going to make some significant mistakes as we're going to read in chapter two. But man, is this guy good. I call up my other pastor friends. When was the last time you preached on alcohol? Because like I see everybody drinking all the time and I'm a little concerned. Well, we don't really talk about those things on Sunday mornings. We're going to talk about it. Talk about sins of men. There's plenty of female alcoholics as well. But for the most part in my life, I've seen men be alcoholics. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine from you. Hannah comes into the church to pray and the spiritual condition of the people of God is it's so bad, he sees her praying and she says, she must be drunk. What does that say? I can drink two beers very quickly and substitute the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a very poor substitute. But I've done it. I'll do it again, probably. I'm not here to be a hypocrite. Over COVID, I was sitting there. There's nothing to do. We watched the show Lost, the series Lost. It's like 7,000 episodes. It's a perfect thing to watch over COVID. It never ended. Never. Season after season, like COVID. It went by day after day. I'm so glad that I saved the show Lost for COVID. But you know what we do is you sit down, you have one drink. The next week you have three. I've shared this before. And eventually I had to say, I need to make sure I've got control. The Holy Spirit gives self-control. You start substituting things in for the Holy Spirit. Read it, Ephesians, the gifts of the Spirit, self-control. It's one of them. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have self-control. When are you a drunkard? When you lose self-control. When you can't say, I'm not going to have that drink. Sometimes it's seven in a sitting. Sometimes it's just two every night. Whatever it is, if you can't control it, you've lost control. And like Eli said, you got to go, you got to put away your wine from you. Alcohol separates more families than almost any other thing. And that's what I've seen. It separates families, it separates friends, and it separates people from the church. If you're sitting here as an alcoholic right now, there's nothing that you want to do more than get away from me. 
because it's changed your brain and it doesn't matter what, well, it doesn't matter what you want. Your brain wants something else. And alcoholics respond so strongly when they feel their alcohol being threatened. They respond so incredibly because it's got a hold on you. It controls you. You don't control it. This is actually the second reference to alcohol in here. You might have missed the first. She says to, about her son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's a reference to a Nazarite vow. I think it's Numbers chapter 17. They do some things to get closer to the Lord. Numbers chapter 6 talks about the Nazarite vow. To get closer to the Lord, what they do is they stop cutting their hair as a public symbol that I am seeking after God. The second thing that they did is they gave up alcohol. They gave up alcohol to try to get after God. You know what you're going to say as an alcoholic right now? This pastor in this church is so legalistic. If you're a Christian, you're an alcoholic. You've learned the phrases. He's not talking about Jesus right now. He's talking about alcohol. What a legalistic dude. What we need to do is, is that you? Because you might have a problem. If we've substituted alcohol in for the Holy Spirit, you've got a problem. And Eli doesn't say it because he's mean. He says it because he wants you to experience something better, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. I'm going to do a Nazarite vow for this month. I'd invite you to join us. Me and Sarah are going to do it. She's been mostly sober for the last eight years because she's been praying that she's the most sober person I know. So... Really, I'm just going to do it. But I'm going to go 30 days. I'm going to be praying for you every day. If you can't give up alcohol for 30 days, you might have a problem. There are Alcoholics Anonymous groups in town. You might need to call them up. If you don't have self-control, what else can you do? It's not a joke. You've lost control. That's what it means to lose control. You can't do it on your own. I had a neighbor, a good friend. He had these two little daughters. One day he comes over. You know, I, I get to know this guy, you know. He, he's, he stays in his garage all the time. He's listening to Christian music. God is working on this man and in his life and in his heart. And he can't get to church. I see him come home and he gets out of his car with a beer. I'm literally thinking, I've got to move because my kids might get run over by this man right? And he's got these two little beautiful daughters, two and four. They play with our kids. It was fantastic. But God's working this man's life. One day he comes over weeping. And he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to miss my kids growing up anymore. I'm like, this is amazing. Didn't even have to preach to this guy. And he's over on my porch. And I, I know the urgency of the situation because if you've lost control, he's at a moment of clarity. This is so rare. It's so precious. I'm calling people. Where's the ace? 535 on a Friday and I'm cursing because I can't get a hold of everybody. Where's the meeting? When's the meeting? I got a guy, are you another, another voicemail. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. I talked I said, you've got to get an AA. You got to do it now. And they meet, they meet like sometimes Sunday at the church. I can't find out when it is, but you got to go. He leaves the moment of clarity passes. He doesn't have control. He never gets help. He comes over. He says, I'm so, you know, I get the kids to bed. This is what, this is what I was doing at over COVID. It's like, get the kids to bed early. Let's get, I'm missing bedtime. Get the kids to bed early. I'm not praying because, you know, I want to go watch a show and have a drink. I'm not drinking seven. I'm not drinking. Eight. It's just, it's insidious. I'm drinking two. But it's enough to start controlling my life. If you're married to an alcoholic, you need to talk to an expert before you proceed. Because alcoholics, first of all, they will try to get you in. That's what they do. They, they love to be in it with other people. The, the, some of the people who throw the best parties are doing it 
because they're just looking for other people to get drunk with. That's why they do it. I had another friend who was like that. Amazing parties, loved the guy. Invite him over to my house. We're working on them. Invite him. We're watching uh, game seven of the Cavs Warriors. We're big basketball fans. Game seven. I can't remember which one this was, but I think it was when LeBron led his team back from down 3-1. Incredible. Most exciting game I've ever seen. He comes over. I didn't have any alcohol. Bad host. You want this to drink? You want that to drink? The guy, it's the most amazing basketball game I've ever seen. I know he hated the Warriors, so this must have been the one. I'm like, why aren't you happy? The guy looks so miserable. It's like I shot his dog. I'm like, what's wrong? Do you hate me? Do you not like me? Do you not like basketball? I know you like Stevie Ray Vaughan. I got this great Stevie Ray Vaughan live DVD, 1985 at the Elma Combo. It's amazing. Let's listen. Do you want to listen to that? No, no. I mean, the guy's so miserable. I'm saying like, what's wrong with this person? He must hate me. He must hate me. No, he loves alcohol. He's convinced himself he loves other people. But you know what? He hated me because what he wants is alcohol. If you think about this, when was the last time you hung out with people and didn't drink? Maybe what you love is alcohol. You've convinced yourself, everybody convinces themselves they're so loving. I'm such a loving person. My friend, I'm sure he thinks he's just the most loving man. Baby, why aren't you fulfilled with me, right? I'm so loving. But you get him away from his alcohol, the man looks miserable. God wants you to love other people. Alcohol takes that from you. God wants you to love your family. Alcohol takes that from you, and it takes your love. If you're the spouse of an alcoholic, you need to go see help. Alcoholics Anonymous is for spouses, too. They'll help you to understand what you're going through and help you deal with it, because your spouse will always have a reason to call you back. Once you start getting out, once you start getting out and seeing friends and doing things and whatever, and they'll say, baby, come back. We got a party. We got to throw this party on Friday for Uncle, great Uncle Johnny. It's whatever. We haven't seen him in 14 years, but we got to, and they'll call you back. We were working on this couple. The wife got saved at one of our women's retreats. We could get her out of the house here and there, but for the most part, her husband's always calling her back. It was unreal. We got her to come to church one Sunday. She lasted 15 minutes. Her husband called up and he said, baby, you got to come home. Kid broke his arm. We got to do whatever. We come home. Oh, he broke his arm. We come home. They didn't break his arm. He fell and cried. Husband thought, this is a reason to get her back. Got to get her back. She left church. We come home at noon. Church starts an hour long. I come home. The kids are fine. They're playing. The, nobody's crying. No cast. But he's, you, if, if you're the spouse of an alcoholic and you try to get all you're going to deal with is lies. I was talking, I had another good friend who was an alcoholic at my church and talking with his wife. His wife came to us for help and talking with her. I was just what I remember. She just, I don't know. I don't know what anything about what this guy is doing anymore. It's just all lies. She wanted to get out, he didn't. It's just all lies. If you want to see if alcohol has a control on you, join me in the Nazarite file for 30 days and see if you can control yourself and not drink any alcohol at all. And if you want help, let me know. This is a winnable battle. Drunkenness is a sin. It's affecting your relationship with God. And if you're an alcoholic, you don't even know it because it's changed your brain. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, instead of alcohol, we need the Holy Spirit. He puts the Holy Spirit in direct uh, opposite of alcohol. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When I sit there and I'm in the presence of God, it feels a lot like being drunk. It feels a lot like having a great buzz. It does. And that's what the Lord wants us to have. Turn to him. It's easier to get it from a can, but God wants you to get it from him. He says, put away your wine, Hannah. 
but she's already done something for her family. She already has. Instead, what she's doing is praying. And she's praying with passion to the Lord. And answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. And this is the amazing part of the story. The man Elkanah in his owl's house went up to the offer to the Lord, the yearly sacrifice, and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as a child is weaned, then I'm going to bring him up, so he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she weaned him, she took up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull. And they brought the child to Eli and said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She told God... She would raise her son in the temple and she kept her promise. That's incredible. She's willing to give what the Lord has given her back to him. James says, in the book of James, he says, you pray and do not receive because you ask for selfish reasons. The rich young man comes to Jesus And how many times had he prayed for riches? And he'd let the blessings become an idol. He says, how can I be saved, Jesus? He says, well, you've got to sell it all. You've let the blessings become an idol. Here, I'm looking at Hannah's prayer. She got what she wanted, but she was willing to give it all back to the Lord. That's amazing. I think of how many times I pray. Am I willing to give anything back to the Lord? Anything that he's given me, it's mine. God gives me 90% and he just asks for 10 back. And I say, you're so mean. What a generous God. He gives me all that he does and then he just asks for a portion back. Yet if the blessings become an idol, we won't give it back. How many of us prayed for children? We prayed for money, we prayed for whatever, but then it comes time to sacrifice. And are we willing to give it back? I was thinking as I'm reading this, if you want your family to follow God, you've got to find fulfillment in him. You've got to read his word. You've got to put away the wine. You've got to know his word. You've got to not let the blessings become an idol. And I'm sitting here thinking, instead of praying for more stuff, what I should do is I should pray for a changed heart. God, I pray that no matter what you ask of me, I'd be willing to give it back to you. How many of you have done this? You want something from God. God, if you give me out of this situation, I will do this and that, the other thing. And then he does, and you don't do it. What I need is not more blessings. What I need is a changed heart. I'm thinking about, I pray for money all the time. I got these kids. One of them's going to need braces soon. I'm sitting there like, God, you're gonna, I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you to provide. Well, what am I willing to give back to him? 
Instead of praying for more money, I need to pray that I would be willing to give what he's already given me back if he so chooses. None of it's mine anyway. If you want your family to follow God, don't let them or anything else become an idol in your life. Let God's blessings be blessings and make the Lord your Lord. And let's pray.